Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen, Episode 70. I'm Phil Dobby and today we look at the key tool used by central banks around the world. But hey... The fact that they use it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Let's remember, these central banks didn't see the global financial crisis coming, and they don't expect to see another one in our lifetime. That's what Janet Yellen said. So does the model stack up? That's what we're asking today. So, DSGE models. Wait for this. Dynamic Stochastic General Equilibrium. DSGE models. This is the lifeblood of monetary policy analysts. But what is it and how does it work or not work, as the case may be? So, Steve, uh, well, let's start with the name, first of all. Stochastic. It means random to me. Uh, but another part of the uh, of, of the title there is equilibrium. So can you have something which is random and also also supposed to be in equilibrium? I mean, is that part of the problem here? Um, no, that's not the, that's not the core problem. I mean, something which is is random can fluctuate around an equilibrium, uh, and the, the um, and the, you know because he, he basically Irving Fisher put this very well back when he was trying to explain why he didn't see the Great Depression coming and why it happened, and he argued that. Uh, uh, economic processes. He said it was generally okay to assume that economic processes, as a rule, tended towards a stable equilibrium. Um, and he then said, but however, uh, even if it is, then any particular variable is going to be subject to exogenous shocks of some description. I mean, the, the sun doesn't come up one morning, or more likely there are clouds over it, which is the actually, no, there aren't, there are no clouds over it, which would actually would disturb people in the UK. Uh, too much sunshine. Um, and therefore, that then causes a change in harvest or a change in activity, and that means you get disturbed above or below the equilibrium. And uh, his argument was that close to an equilibrium, it's stable. Further away, it might be unstable. And so rather than forces bringing you back towards equilibrium, after you go a certain distance, you might continue diverging. That's far too sophisticated for people who wrote DSGE models. Right. But before the DSGE model, which we'll come to in a second, as to what it actually means and how it works, mm. with the we had the ISLM model, Investment mm. Savings Liquidity Money, which again is, is a model, isn't it, based on finding a, an equilibrium state for the, for the economy. But that was found left wanting for whatever reason. So, I mean, before we look at DSGE, explain the ISLM model and how that worked <laughs> and where that fell flat. We could be here for quite then some explain time. The model, <laughs> then explain the model that came before that. Exactly. Actually, the, 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 the cute thing about the uh, ISLM and that the, the people who've uh, taken a look at the cartoon that I uh, uh, wrote recently with Miguel Guerra will see that I talk about uh, uh, Paul Krugman main, lovingly maintaining a, an older, a slim uh, economic equilibrate. Of course, SLIM is a is an anagram of ISLM. Uh, and the ISLM models were derided by people like um, Sargent, 
Lucas, Rapping, Kidland and Prescott who all gave us the initially what they call real business cycle models and then DSGE models. It's, it's like it's a, 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 you have to cornucopia of acronyms mm. in the classical economics. Uh, they deride it as being a typical Keynesian model. There's only one problem. It wasn't a Keynesian model. And the person who told us this is the person who wrote the model, which is uh, John Hicks. And he explained that uh, he, he described his model as a way of representing what he thought Keynes said in the general theory. But in fact, and I, I knew this uh, in some ways before I read the article where he said that wasn't the case. I knew it because I read Hicks's papers where he attempted to build dynamic models in general. He said the ISLM model came to him roughly in 1934, years before he read Keynes, uh, when he was trying to represent uh, three-way trade on a two on a two-dimensional diagram. So he had the image. Uh, the, the basic idea that neoclassicals have is that uh, uh, microeconomics is talking about individual consumers, individual firms, maybe individual markets. Macroeconomics is what uh, they describe as general equilibrium, uh, covering all markets and how they interact at once. And what Hicks was doing way back in 1934 was trying to represent what happens in three markets. Um, which you might imagine, say, being the goods market, the money market, and the labour market, three markets on a two-dimensional diagram. And he applied what is known as Volra's law. Now, Volra's law is strictly, well, it's it's what it looks like an accounting concept, but it's strictly the way the neoclassicals see this accounting. And that argument goes that if you have n markets, let's say n is equal to three, and n minus two, one of them, oh, sorry, n minus two of them are in equilibrium. How about me? Two, n minus one of them are equilibrium. So two of the three markets are in equilibrium. Then by definition, the third has to be in equilibrium as well. Now, using that mind, uh, that, that mind virus, Hicks said, okay, I, if I assume uh, these two markets are in equilibrium, then I can ignore the third and I can draw a diagram representing what's happening between these two markets. And, and that gives me a two-dimensional way of representing a three-dimensional process. Right. Now, that sounds really cool until he realised about 50 years later, after being regularly berated by, my, 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 well, we used to fight like cat and dog, but my, my good friend, Paul Davidson, who is the editor of the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics, Paul um, just hammered and hammered and hammered uh, John Hicks whenever he saw him, which is quite frequently back in those days, uh, that you effectively, that you you can't assume certainty. You can't assume uh, equilibrium in the sense of people's expectations being fulfilled. And in the middle of all that, Hicks realised that that's exactly what he'd done. And looking at his own model, he said, uh, and he didn't say this as clearly as I would like him to say it, but what he fundamentally said was, Volra's law, the law that if N minus one markets are in equilibrium, then the nth market also has to be in equilibrium, only applies at the point where the other markets are in equilibrium. Now, right. if you draw the ISLM diagram, what you've got, and believe me, this is shocking. I know it's quite unusual for people. That they, they won't be used to this in economics, but it involves two intersecting lines. And that point of intersection is representing what? It represents equilibrium in both the goods market and the money market. Right. Now, what Hicks realised writing in 1979, he published the paper in, unfortunately, he published it in Paul Davidson's journal, which is called the Journal of Post-Keynes in Economics, and therefore precisely zero neoclassical economists read Hicks saying that it wasn't a model of Keynes. But what he said was, if you're not at the point where the two curves intersect, then even if you're on one of the other two curves, you're at a point of disequilibrium 
for the second market in the diagram. And therefore, if you have three markets in your model, the other market must also be out of equilibrium. Right. And therefore, fundamentally, you have a non-equilibrium process. Uh, therefore, the only point that makes sense on the entire diagram is the point where the two curves intersect. But those, and, two, but those two curves yeah. are, because I'm a, I'm, a I'm a simple person, so you've got oh, to, yeah. well, uh, which, which, which helps, means you've got to dumb all this down for me. So <laughs> uh, so we maybe bring some other people along with it. So those th those two lines, the, the, the two axes are investment and savings mm. and liquidity and money. Yep, yep, that's right. So you call them LL first of all. The liquidity in your money is the right one. Yep. So what? What's what, explain the relationship between the two then to supposedly okay. arrive at that equilibrium? Yeah. Okay. Well, the idea he said was that you ha you have a a uh, the money market is probably the easiest one to represent because mm. that that is very s simply derived and and can concludes a, a, a vital neoclassical fallacy as well, and that is that the money supply is fixed and variable only by the government. Therefore, it's not a market phenomenon, and therefore you draw it as a vertical line. So, if you draw on on the x and y axes on the on the horizontal axis, you have the um, uh, level of uh, economic. I've got to remember with the ISLM model, it's the level level of G GDP, and on the vertical axis, you have the interest rate, and uh, and you then draw a straight line saying that the amount of money in the economy is independent of the. Um, interest rate it's simply set by the the government so the government decides to double the money supply bang the line moves you know twice as far from the origin if they have it it moves halfway back so that's the vertical line for the money supply and then on top of that you draw another that's the supply curve the demand curve for this market is the desire of investors to invest and the proposition which was strictly non-keynesian and this is where we're, where um one of the many points where, where post-Keynesians diverge. The point, the argument was that the curve of the investment function represents people's desire to invest given the interest rate. And the higher the interest rate, the lower people's desire to invest because the higher interest rate means you've got to mm. um, reduce, you yeah. know, d discount future returns more. Yep. So you have a downward sloping demand curve, a vertical supply curve, and that's one part of it. But then you said, well, that, that's... Um, that demand curve doesn't just depend only on the rate of interest. It also depends upon the level of transactions. So as well as having a desired rate of investment, uh, uh, which gives you one single curve, that is also a desired rate of investment given a particular level of income. So if you have a low level of income, there'll be less transactions. This is pretty much the velocity of money argument. If you have a, if your GDP is going to be a thousand and your a money supply is is 333 and and velocity is money turns over three times a year um then you're going to need 333 dollars to buy that one thousand dollars worth of gdp so but if you double it you're going to need twice as much money so what that gave you was a series a whole family of curves uh each one with the, the, the low ones with lower level of income the higher ones with high level of income and if you then draw your what you get is a series of points in the interest rate and GDP space, interest rate vertical. This is great stuff to try to try and talk about. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing the radio thing of, of, of drawing the lines with my hands as I'm talking here. So I should actually be filming this and pass it on to you. But um, that, that gives you uh, the, the combination of the vertical supply curve of money with these downward sloping curves for 
demand for money where they, the higher curves involve a higher level of income. With that, when you draw that in the interest rate and uh, income space, you get a single curve representing points of equilibrium in the money market, which slopes up. Right. So that effectively takes the role of the supply curve. Do you know what? We'll, no. ne- we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll never do this again. We'll never try and explain no, never, a graph never. on the radio ever again. Yeah. But look, I mean, at, at its simplest level, I mean, the people who were opposed to the ISLM model, I mean, they weren't opposed to it because they saw it as uh, trying to create an equilibrium. And they also weren't opposing it because they saw it as uh, sort of taking microeconomic principles like, uh, you know, supply and demand and trying to push it up to the macro level. But the, because the DSGE model is pretty much based on the same, those two things. <laughs> Pardon me. What they, what they argued <clears throat> was that the criticism they made of the ISLM model was an ad hoc. Uh, it involved all these ad hoc assumptions about the shape of the the money curve. The way the way that Hicks made it look like it was roughly talking about Keynes was that it was, he well he derives a downward sloping simile to the demand curve in microeconomics by presuming uh, a relationship between investment at the level of GDP, so a high level of investment, high level of GDP. The money multiplied by the multiplier effect, the r- relationship, you know, a certain amount of investment creates several times that amount of GDP. That gave me the downward sloping demand curve. Now, what he then did was say, well, the shape of these of the um, supply curve, effectively, the the money market curve, it's very very flat when you have a low rate of interest because as you get to a certain point for um, the rate of interest can't go below a certain level. You know, you, we're not going to get, well, he didn't believe you get negative interest rates, but you might get you know, a minimum level 2 or 3%. And at that level, uh, there's no particular, uh, the, the curve's flat. It just, you know, it's, it's like it hits an asymptote. And then when you get a very high level of uh, demand for money, when you have a high level of GDP, uh, then any extra demand you drive into the economy by trying to push that demand curve further out, which you can tr- control by fiscal policy, trying to increase it just causes inflation. So what you've got is a, a, a supply curve which starts off flat and then goes very steep. And then what Hicks said is a way of supposedly reconciling Keynes with what he called the classics, which were actually the neoclassics, uh, was that uh, where, the cur- where the LM curve is flat, that's Keynes's region because there, if you change the amount of demand by fiscal policy, you push out the demand curve and that causes an increase in GDP with only a small offsetting increase in the rate of, in, in the level of interest. Whereas when you're in the classical region, as he called it, if you try to increase demand even further, almost all of that increase in demand goes into driving up the interest rate. So that's, that's the uh, reconciliation that Hicks himself made. And the neoclassicals said, this is just ad hoc. You know, how did you derive that shape, you know, these are all hand wavy type assumptions. And we want to dive in there and make them much, much more realistic. Now, uh, what they did was say, let's actually not just wave our hands about, let's actually start from the model of a single profit maximizing firm on one side and a single utility maximizing consumer on the other side, which is the microeconomic theory, and extrapolate that up to a model of the overall economy. And that's fundamentally what DSGE models did. Right. Which is, uh, which you don't need to, I mean, you don't need to think too much. You don't even need to be, you know, uh, really exposed a great deal to economics to know that that is just plain wrong, that, that everybody behaves the same as an individual. 
Well, yeah, and this this is what they what they ended up doing because uh, the way I mean, the CV, it's worse than that. I mean, I'm, this is this is the good side. I'm getting into the bad stuff later, but the the good side of this was they they derive it from microeconomics, and they the part of microeconomics is actually the actual foundation of this model actually goes back to a paper from a guy called Ramsey, who was a a, a polymath back in the um, early 1920s. Died very very young. It is a colleague of Keynes's. Um, but the basic idea is to start with, say, let's take the utility maximizing consumer from whom we can derive a individual demand curve, take the profit maximizing firm from which we can derive a, uh, a, a profit maximizing supply curve, point of intersection, equilibrium, Bob's your uncle, scale it up to the, um, or maybe even, you know, maybe Phil's your uncle, scale it up to the uh, Pete's man, uh, macro, macro level, and you've got a model of the macro economy, which, funnily enough, looks exactly the same as ISLM in that it's got two intersecting lines, but it's rather more twisted even than that. So as someone who worked at, you know, the, the microeconomic level in that I was marketing hmm. for a firm for, for a number of years, I understood very clearly that if we pushed up our prices too high, people would buy less. But the reason they were, they were buying less from us is because they would go to a competitor who would uh, not be charging as much as we were. So we'd, uh, you know, unless we ch- unless we changed our products significantly. So the idea that you take one individual company and uh, even one individual uh, person and aggregate it up doesn't make sense because there'll always be somebody else counteracting what you're doing. So it's not a sim- you know, unless every. I guess you could make the assumption that if everybody pushed their prices up for everything then we would consume less. But that's never going to happen, is it? Because if you put prices well, up for one one thing, somebody else is going to drop it somewhere else or something else will come along that everyone wants to buy instead, which mm. might be more expensive or less. I mean, you just can't simplify things that much. Yeah, and that's that's the problem. They, they simplified it past the point of the you know, old Einstein's kiss, simple, keep it as simple as possible, but no simpler. Uh, they pushed it far simpler, <laughs> but actually also far more complicated because what they actually did was take this 1920 eight i think paper by um by um ramsey and what, what ramsey was asking himself which is a in its own way it's a, a sort of intriguing neoclassical type question is there an optimal savings rate for a society and he said there was a completely highly mathematical paper uh, which really was a, a polymath this character uh, both in terms of the issues the issues he covered and also his intellectual depth so what he assumed and, and he made these assumptions in the context of a model of long-run equilibrium growth. What he assumed was that um, there was a, you know, uniformity of taste, so he could represent an entire economy uh, using a single set of indifference curves, and that there was a diminishing marginal productivity for capital. So the more capital you added, the less you got the return from capital, equally the same for labor. And what he... Uh, derive was a two-equation system saying that um, there will be a, a future point where you get the optimal ratio of capital to labor and you get the optimal rate of increase change over time in people's consumption and because there's a, there's a labor leisure trade-off so if you if you want to have you know lots and lots of goods you grow faster but you have less leisure and gee that'll annoy you so that the trade-off the individual household was doing is between working and therefore earning income which can be spent and then having leisure time to enjoy that income so uh, there was an optimal point uh, in terms of the consumption activities of the household and there was an optimal point in terms of the capital labor ratio of the uh, of the 
corporate sector, each of which, of course, is scaled from a single individual. Right. And and therefore, that what that led to, and you're going to love this term, it's actually literally in the article, it led to what he called a bliss point <laughs> in the future. Okay? Bliss. There's an equilibrium hey. I've been trying to reach. Oh, you just join me. <laughs> Join me on my trips to Amsterdam, mate. They do <laughs> it over there. I don't want to know about your bliss points. I know you don't. <laughs> I know. Anyway. Uh, but anyway, so this is bliss point in the future, and it involved these two differential equations for the rate of change of uh, utility and the rate of uh, – I think it's the rate of change of the capital output ratio. Um, now, that bliss point uh, the, with, with the two-equation system – in a in what was actually a, a model going through time, therefore it involves differential equations. That bliss point was an unstable node. If you if you looked at the dynamics of the system, uh, there's when you have a two dimensional system, you can describe it in in several ways geometrically. Uh, the one is that there's if the equilibrium is neither stable nor unstable. It's like a tabletop. So if you drop a ball bearing on the tabletop, it's going to roll anywhere at all. The second way is that it's stable. So it's like dropping it inside a, a, a cereal bowl and you know it's going to roll down until it hits the bottom of the cereal bowl or the bottom of a you know, glass of champagne, that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, it can be unstable. So it's upside down and it's a hill. And if you drop it on the hill, it's going to roll off. The odds of actually dropping the ball bearing so it stays precisely on the point is zero. So it's unstable in both dimensions. The third, the final option is that it looks like a horse's saddle. And here, if you know, if ever, I don't, I think of an audience, visualize the saddle. Okay. Now imagine throwing a ball bearing from a distance and getting it to land on the saddle and not roll off. Yeah. That okay. Would, that, that not would be easy. A, In fact, impossible. A mean feat. Yeah, yeah. It's also unstable. Now, that was the stature, that was the nature of this future bliss point. Now, that that is something which, given the problem that Ramsey was, was um, considering, which is, is there a stable long run? Um, savings rate for an economy that then meant that the to actually reach this future bliss point you had to effectively jump on the vector that describes the section of the saddle that runs up and down the horse's spine because if you imagine if you actually were so brilliant at, at throwing and you have to apply a bit of spin to this ball bearing as well uh, throw from a distance and get it to land literally on the on the running up and down the spine of the horse uh, perfectly doing it, then ultimately it would fluctuate a while and finally it would settle right at the the, the, the the bottom point of the saddle on the horse's back, but of course on top of the section where your legs go over. And that was the, that was the, so to do that, you had to land on the, if you mentioned just drawing a, drawing a, a curved line going off or a straight line going off from the, uh, that, that along the spine of the horse, you had to be able to hit that point. Now, what that meant was, uh, because this is a point in the future, now imagine the saddle floating in space where your horizontal <laughs> axis is time and it might be, say, a century away in the future and we're back in year zero here, or back, in, back in Ramsey, say, 1928. Good, good, a good year to write an article about equilibrium in the economy, don't you think? Yeah. Uh, so 1928, you want to reach equilibrium in 2018. Uh, that's how long it's going to take for these two processes of utility maximizing behavior. But when people so, talk, so I mean, yeah. I think what you're saying is, um, you know, there's the, there's so many factors, aren't there, that are going to throw off any well, it, it, uh, any it, attempt it, it, to try. It's it's a falsehood to try and assuming equilibrium. Just one point on equilibrium, though. I'm okay. Just I'm just when when people talk about equilibrium, are they talking yeah. about a definitive? Point which is not moved from. I mean, you said yourself that you could you could move from a a point of equilibrium while still having um, 
uh, sort of a stochastic approach. So, for example, uh, chartists, for example, the way they work, you know, people who are saying, oh, this, you know, where's the Aussie dollar going to go next? And, they, they, you know, they draw a line. They look at the, you know, the current position on the Aussie dollar. They draw a line and say, well, it's sort of wavering along this point. So, in a way, they're sort of like saying, well, it's at this point of equilibrium. And then the moment it moves out of that equilibrium, it finds a new level. And they draw a new line and say, well, look, you know, it's probably going to hang around this line for a while. So, as far as they're concerned, that's sort of at an equilibrium, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's, 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 that's actually probably more sophisticated than what I'm talking about here uh, because at least they understand things things move of in, internal dynamics because back, back to Ramsey, if I can just finish that point, pardon me, but I'm being didactic here. I've got to finish the lecture. Uh, he said if you, you actually reach this point because it involves savings, savings is not consumption. So you can divide income into consumption plus savings. You divide it into producing consumer goods and producing investment goods. Since this point in the future is unstable, to reach it, you've got to be on this vector that will take you to that point, like sliding down the horse's back. And, and that point means in the current level, uh, you have to adjust today's savings and consum- consumption. You might have to increase savings or you might have to increase consumption so that you land on that vector and then you can sl- smoothly move there over the next century. Now, he planned, he imagined that a, 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 a benevolent central planner could do that and say, here's the bliss point in 2018. Uh, therefore, you people in, in 1928 have to consume a lot less and you move there. But that's with his little model. Now, that's mad enough. But what the neoclassicals did to build DSG models was say, well, we're all benevolent dictators of ourselves. We all know the future really, really well. We can all work out where the saddle is and therefore we can all adjust our consumption today so that we move to this equilibrium. The, the, old, the only way to reach this point of equilibrium in the future is to move this vector uh, now. And so uh, we know where the saddle is. Uh, we know where we are. We jump to the point on the, in the dynamic space where we're on this vector and we then slide smoothly to equilibrium. And then what happens is some shock will come along and disturb either technology, which affects what the firms do, or um, preferences, which affects what the households do, and the saddle will move in space. And when it moves in space, we then now know that it's moved to, you know, 2018, it's moved, you know, up, up three points of consumption or down whatever else we jump to the new location when that shock comes along and those jumps up and down mean we either work more if there's a uh, you know if the if, if, if our preferences for income have risen or we work less if our preferences for income have fallen we want more leisure and that's what appears to be the business cycle but in fact these are equilibrium movements to maintain our equilibrium over time and that includes and wait for it that includes the great depression which is actually an extended holiday so are you, you saying you don't need to go to amsterdam to get stoned all you got to do is listen to a neoclassical economist <laughs> so what are, what are the failings here then i mean one of them is that oh. is the, is the uh, well, well let's break them down so one of them is that the, the the assumptions are presumably wrong because they are trying to oversimplify part of it because of this whole thing about taking microeconomic principles and trying to apply it up at the mac- macroeconomic level well, and ignoring, is, ignoring all, yeah. all those other factors. So you well, it, it, I mean, it, 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 this, the, Robert Solow's response to this is actually quite classic because Robert Solow, of course, is a neoclassical economist. He was a, a warrior on the neoclassical side in the Cambridge controversy over the nature of capital. He loathed Joan Robinson with a passion. Uh, so he's the last person you could expect to come out and critique neoclassical economics. And his description of these models, and I quote, 
uh, in a paper which he gave for a festery for Joe Stiglitz some years ago, was he called it dumb and dumber in macroeconomics. And he said, looking at this model, the, what, what they've done is they've taken what was a long-run growth model by Ramsey, uh, and he said, when you look at the long-run growth model, and he produced a simpler version himself in 1956, the solo growth model, as it's known. He said, looking at this model, uh, it was obviously intended only to cover the idea of long-run growth. There's absolutely no way it could be used to explain business cycles. And he said, but what are they doing? They're attempting to explain business cycles with them. And he said, when you look at it, the the, 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 the archetypal model, which is the the real business cycle models that preceded DSGEs have a single consumer who owns a single firm, maximizing the utilities of consumer by deciding how much to work as a worker in the firm that he owns uh, uh, with and working in, in labor markets and product markets which clear perfectly where there's no time delays in breaching equilibrium after a disturbance and where they have perfect foresight. And he said, how could anyone have imagined a reasonable short to medium term macroeconomic uh, analysis to come out of that setup? And he frankly laughs at people who produce these models and, and have the misfortune of, uh, of giving a paper at a conference that he's attending. So they make uh, calling them heroic doesn't even do justice. I mean, even Sir Humphrey Appleby uh, would, 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 uh, would <laughs> couldn't even contemplate uh, the possibility of making assumptions as absurd as are made behind real business cycle models. So this is where you need complexity. So let's go. Let's go back to uh, you know the example of you know I was running marketing for uh, for for a telecommunications company. I mm. can't I can't remember how many um, customers we had, but it was in the hundreds of thousands, maybe a, a bit over a million, I think perhaps. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, you know, too many for us to be able to say, well, out of our, all of our customers, they're all going to behave this way. If we put the price of this plan up, we know exactly how many are going to leave because, or if we drop the plan. We know, or you know, we actually were trying to move people from dial up in in those days to to broadband internet. That was a, a big thing, and we segment mm. we segmented our audience, which is what marketers do. We say, well, okay, let's look, have a look at the age of the people. Let's have a look at the household composition. Let's try and understand what it is they want to buy and what is their behaviour likely to be based on their demographics. Now, you don't get it right, but at least you, it's better than treating everybody exactly the same. Uh, so, so segmentation, which is a marketing tool that's been used. For eons sounds like you're saying well you know even that level of complexity is not applied in uh, in in macroeconomics because we're just assuming that everyone behaves the same as each other i mean we're not even going to break the model up and say well society is made up of i don't know 40 different types of people for example and they're all going to behave differently yeah and that's that's one of the many failings in this discipline and uh, and that that is actually um the guilty party there uh, in some ways, is a guy called Hal Varian, who nowadays gets kudos for being an economist for Google, but actually wrote the textbook that most neoclassicals learnt their uh, microeconomics from, and to some extent their macroeconomics, the general equilibrium theory. And he glossed over a finding, uh, which is, this is getting pretty, pretty jargonistic, but what's called the Sonnenschein-Mandrell-Debreu theorem, where it was proven unintentionally that if you had two consumers each of whom in isolation you could derive a downward sloping individual demand curve for. If you add their demands together for the you know, at least two markets, you've got to have at least two markets to be able to even talk about relative prices, then you, the, the demand curves, which could be derived out of adding together these two downward sloping demand curves, could have any shape at all that you could draw uh, as a polynomial. 
And therefore, the only way to get around it was to assume not only that all consumers are the same, wait for it, mate, all products are the same as well. <laughs> okay? That's mm. the assumption they happily made without even realising the consequence of it. What it was was a proof by contradiction. Uh, because they said the only way you can avoid, if you start with two consumers with different tastes and different income sources and two commodities which have different, which one of which is a luxury and the other is a necessity, uh, then you can't derive a downward sloping demand curve unless you assume that the consumers have virtually identical indifference curves. Uh, they can they can be physically shifted, but they've got to have exactly the same um, shape overall. And the, the consumption goods, you must consume them in the same ratio. Where if you're talking toilet paper and chocolate, uh, if that's the, what you've got a choice to consume, uh, your consumption must be such that you have one roll of toilet paper uh, per, per chocolate bar at a low level of income. And if you're earning billions, you have a 1,000 toilet uh, uh, rolls and, and a 1,000 bars of chocolate. There's absolutely no change in your consumption pattern as your income rises. Uh, that, uh, to put it as a technical phrase as I've done as well, that is total fucking bullshit. Mm. Okay. But that is what they assumed uh, without even realising what they were doing. And therefore, they thought, they thought the idea of a representative agent made sense as a simple way of, of simplifying a major problem in economics. In fact, it was a way of, of, of ignoring a fundamental contradiction in their own logic. So, um, so, so is complexity the answer? Then is that the uh, and and um, uh, and and is part of the problem that you know by taking simple models and adding to them and building them up? I I think of it a bit like, um, for example, IT systems, which I you know I know you'll you relate to this as well. But I was working at one stage, working for an even bigger telephone company, a very big one in Australia, uh, that was also very old and had a lot of very old IT systems, and they used to fix problems by putting a bit of software on top of the software that wasn't working very well and ignoring yeah. ignoring the fact that were actually creating the problems in the first place and then they'd uh, find that that wasn't doing exactly what they wanted so they built another bit of software on top of that and so you had error built on error built on error uh, mm. to such a point that at the end of the day uh, you, you, know, you had a system that nobody could really figure out what it was doing or if something went wrong uh, how you fixed it so for example we wanted to make changes to the website we had to close down the whole bloody website because there were so many uh, related factors so is it, is it a bit like that you know have we taken by taking microeconomics and sort of building models on top of it to try and apply it to the macroeconomic level we are um, sort of ignoring errors along the way and, and, and false assumptions and, and also ignoring those factors which really are making it an influencing factor that only apply at the macroeconomic yeah, level. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty much it, and this that's what they they continue fighting against it. So when the D, when the, what are called the real business cycle models uh, were attempted to fit to data, they were appallingly bad uh, at being fitted to data. And the response of the neoclassicals was do precisely what you're talking about. They said, well, this model doesn't work because it's it's just too. Uh, you know, if, if everything stands, everything is perfect. Everything's not quite perfect in the real world, and therefore those imperfections explain why, when there is an exogenous shock to technology or preferences, uh, then the economy, rather than returning to equilibrium instantly or going to a new equilibrium point instantly, uh, it takes a while to reach the new equilibrium point, and in that process, there can be involuntary unemployment. And hey, we've explained uh, where recessions come from. And that made them all very ecstatic and happy and quite literally, I mean, speaking, having spoken with quite a few 
technical modelers in, in uh, neoclassical economics over the last decade, uh, particularly in central banks. They seriously believe that these very elaborate models, which had all these extra jiggles put on top to overcome the fact that the underlying system didn't actually reach the result they wanted, uh, this, this complicated model, they thought it described reality properly. And they were completely flummoxed when the crisis came along because they thought, Everything is going to be hunky-dory and bang, this crisis, which so they was concerned could never happen because they knew how to manage the economy. This crisis blew up in their faces when they were managing the economy themselves. So when Sydney's old age population, because it is an aging population, when those people decide they're going to downsize and they all try and sell their houses, expecting they're going to get the price that it was worth last month. But if they all start to increasingly do it over a short period of time, because they're all getting old and going into old folks' homes, and so house prices crash because there's just not the demand to pay that level because the younger people don't have the money that uh, that's going to meet their expectation. How would uh, how would the model explain that? Because of course they, it would, w- they it- wouldn't. They wouldn't because you're a representative agent. They they mm-hmm. might what they would try to do, and this is where they when they get very angry when people criticise them and say, "Well, we know we can handle heterogeneous agents now." What what the reason that the models failed? The reason they couldn't derive a demand curve in the first place is that. The model of an isolated individual leaves out the distribution of income. Now, of course, in the real world, changing prices changes the distribution of income. So they had to make an assumption to get around that happening, which is where they assume all consumers are the same and all products are the same. But fundamentally, one of the one of the logjams they frequently hit, and you find this happening all the time in neoclassical literature, is their model presumes that prices change without any trades taking place. It's simply expectations change and therefore prices change because expectations shift. So I remember reading a paper by Hal Varian, uh, quite literally one of his own academic papers, where he was trying to explain uh, price setting in finance markets. And I was reading the paper thinking, he's got to be approaching the point where he says that there's actually no trades. And I'm watching and he says, obviously the implication of my logic here is that there are no trades, but we'll jump over that and keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> and it, look again getting back to you know my my business experience the expectation to pay is never the same as what people actually do pay ultimately exactly expectations one of the one of the things the real world tells us is expectations are never fulfilled and my favorite line from a rock and roll song john lennon it may have been paul mccartney wrote it i think it was john lennon about paul mccartney's son the uh, movie the uh, the song sean life is what happens when you're busy making other plans yeah yeah now, what they presume is the world is inhabited by people whose plans are always fulfilled. And that's the basis of their modeling the macro economy. Therefore, nobody can ever have disappointed expectations. Now, ironically, that's what Hicks himself concluded was the weakness about ISLM, because the only said the only way the idea of, the, of equilibrium over time makes sense is if expectations are fulfilled. And he said in the way he first developed the ISLM model before he read Keynes back in the early 1930s, uh, his definition of equilibrium applied over a week. That was his time period. He said it makes sense, roughly speaking, to say that over a week, expectations won't change all that much, so you can take expectations as constant. But the time frame for Keynes's general theory was effectively not weeks but years, and it doesn't make any sense to say that over a year, expectations won't change. So to say that expectations are fulfilled means that people are always... Uh, the economy is standing out exactly as they expect. And Hicks writing in the 
late 1970s, was thought of the, the crisis that occurred in 73 to 75 and said clearly people's expectations were not fulfilled there. There were surprises, there were shocks, and therefore you can't model this stuff with a concept that presumes continuous equilibrium or continuous fulfilment of expectations. But that is fundamentally what is still built in to the certainly the real business cycle models, but even the DSGE models that added in these little frictions, as they call them, to try to explain why once you're out of equilibrium, you'll take a while to return to it. In all cases, they're still presuming that people's expectations of the future are accurate. So your answer to all of this is to say, well, okay, there needs to be a far more complicated model where we consider all the possible variables and we keep on changing those variables based on observations until we get close to what's actually happening in reality. If we're slightly off what's happening in reality, we look and see what variable we got wrong and we try and fine tune that. So over time, we have a complex model which really does try and match as close as is humanly possible to what's actually happening in the in the broader economy. That's the idea, isn't it? No. All right. Okay. Well, tell me. Tell me where I go wrong. I, it sounds well. You should be doing that. Sounds like a bloody good idea to me. <laughs> well, that's what they right. That's that's their being their response. We've got to make this model more complicated, and that's literally what Olivia Blanchard had to say in the most recent one of his most recent papers, saying that uh, he pretty much said that we the the the, the real driving force behind DS, DSG models in general was the belief that we should derive macroeconomics from an irrefutable and undeniably true foundation now they because they've been trained in this neoclassical way of thinking they actually think oh that's microeconomics now as you know when i wrote debunking economics the first edition it was almost all about micro saying it's a load of it's 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 a load of crock Mm. Uh, virtually everything you assume in micro is wrong so it's not the real world it's not reality and then the, the second problem becomes that if you actually attempt to aggregate uh, or extrapolate individuals forward, which is what they do, extrapolate from individuals to the collective level, uh, you can't do that because it's the interactions between agents that determines a complex system, not the behaviour of the individual agents themselves. So my favourite example there that I use in um, Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis is that if extrapolation worked, you could explain all the properties of water by understanding the properties of a single molecule of H2O. And there would therefore, of course, need to be a water molecule uh, which applied between temperatures of 0 and 100 degrees Celsius, a steam molecule above 100 C, an ice molecule below 100 C, and my absolute favourite, of course, the snowflake molecule. Now, of course, there's no such bloody thing. All these things form because of interactions between particles, which are called H2O, which are actually identical. Right, but so, you know, but you know it. But you can put assumptions. You know, at what point it will become a snowflake? You know, you under, know under, no, under what conditions? Snowflake. It, it, it takes more the snow. It, to have a snowflake, you've got to have more than one molecule of water. Right. Okay. Now, what they think is you can get a snowflake out of a single molecule of water. No, you can't. That's what's called emergent properties. Right. Uh, but, but, it's still, direction- but it's still based on assumptions, isn't it? That if you've got in, in these conditions, you've got this amount of water in these conditions, then a snowflake will happen. Yeah, but it's, it's got to be talking about the re- interactions between the molecules, mm. and therefore you've, you've, and that's the same thing you were talking about earlier about different uh, types of consumers. Right. Uh, you, you've but, got to have interactions, and the classic interaction. This is what they should have learned out of the Sonnenschein Mantral de Broeck conditions. You should, they should have learned. You've got to have the distribution of income in there, because if you have these arbitrary individuals where you don't actually say one's rich and one's poor. Um, and you then change the relative prices between commodities. If you do say one's rich and one's poor, then changing the distribution of income is going to have a 
you know, a, a particular likely effect on consumption of luxuries versus necessities. So doesn't this right. so doesn't this all get back to making the, the model more complicated? Saying, well, yes, yeah, so let's let's look at the distribution of income. Let's look at the demographics. Let's look at the age profile, stuff like that. Let's look at well, it's, it's regional spread. Let's look at uh, yeah. you know. Um, but, but, yeah, but it's 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 saying you've got to for starters saying you've got to work at an aggregated level. You can't start at the level of the isolated individual. And the best actually, I'm having lunch with him tomorrow. The person who first made this case very eloquently is Alan Kerman, who wrote a, wrote a paper uh, uh, called the uh, with, with subtitle was the Emperor uh, the Emperor has no clothes. Hint hint as to where I got the title for debunking economics from. But uh, Alan pointed out that if we could take this result seriously, we may be forced to work at of a higher level of aggregation than the isolated individual. The concept that we should derive economics from the isolated individual may be one we have to abandon. Now, he was right. So you've got to have social classes in there, and that's part of what mm. you're talking about being more complicated. But the intriguing thing is, and this is what I've argued quite extensively in, uh, in Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis, it complex does not mean complicated. Complex means interactions between a system when you describe the structure of the economy properly, and that's, that's, that's the complicated bit. Describe the structure properly. Simple assumptions will do uh, as a way of capturing the actual overall behavior of the system. As long as so, they're right. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> that's something. Then so you're right. You're sort of right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. So, so they've got to be right, and so you've got to know. And I guess the, the the secret there is if you make an assumption and then it's proven wrong, you've got to throw it away straight away and move on to the next one. And that's perhaps what people have been reticent to do because they've clung onto these ideas. Well, it's more than just an assumption. It's a whole methodology because their methodology. This is uh, again the, one of the best papers I've seen, and this is by uh, God called I think Asperger unfortunate name, mm. and uh, Janus Varoufakis. And uh, it talks about what is neoclassical economics. And the point that they make is that every time you say that this is a particular assumption, a neoclassical character like Tony Yates will say, oh, look, I know a paper by, by Yada Blada uh, written in 1932 in uh, Uzbekistan, and that made a different assumption, therefore you're wrong. And what, what uh, Asperger and Varoufakis said there are meta-assumptions that define the neoclassical approach. And one of those meta-assumptions is you derive everything from the isolated individual. A second one is that you talk about the properties of equilibrium. And the third is everything is instrumental. You don't actually ask where preferences and technology come from. Now, that is what they've done. And that methodology of deriving from the individual is what they continue hanging on to. Uh, whereas if they'd properly accepted the Epson and Schein mantle to birth theorem results, they would have said, well, we've got to work at the level of social classes. Mm. Now, if they'd done that, they'd be closer to the actual structure of the economy, and we might have got a realistic economics. Yeah, but but there are many more factors, aren't there? Because you do look at one of the uh, one of the things that's that's driving the the economies of the West today is perhaps less to do with social class and more to do with the uh, the origin of people. So you know we we've we've got big divides. I guess you could call them social divides based on immigration, for example. And you know the ability, you know the fact that some people have moved into the country are prepared to work for less because they come from an economy where the standard of living is lower. So mm. uh, they can push more, more more money back to their country uh, at a way which is going to make sense for them. I mean, there's a million and one extra variables which have changed over time. I mean, this is, you know, that wouldn't have been an issue 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah, but it, it's also the, 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 
the reason I say they've got to think in terms of a complex systems approach uh, is actually my experience of doing precisely that because my model of Minsky, I've, I've subsequently realized, I didn't realize when I first derived it, but I've subsequently realized I can derive that model simply by taking the definitions of the wager share of GDP, the employment rate and the private debt to GDP ratio and differentiating with respect to time and then putting in incredibly simple assumptions between output and capital stock, uh, employment and rate of change of wages. Uh, and I get both the great moderation and a crisis, which is what we experience. So working in an incredibly simple way and, and diving into core elements of capitalism, distinct distribution, uh, effectively the level of output worked out through um, uh, the employment rate and leverage the financial sector, I got the fundamental behaviour of the capitalist economy before we had both the great moderation and the crisis. They, they go together. So it, it doesn't take the, the level of com complicatedness doesn't have to be as extreme as you're saying there to get something which captures most of the characteristics that matter of the economy. And this was the reason that Hayek uh, was a critic of mathematical economics because he said there's so many factors you've got to include and you can't put them all in a model and it would never work anyway. But he actually allowed that maybe sometime in the future we could do that. Now, what we know from uh, subsequent to the time that Hayek wrote, we now know that complex does not require complicated. So if you take a look at what happened in the weather systems, for example. Well, this is, yeah, I was going to use that as an example because weather, weather works at two levels, doesn't it? So we've got, I mean, it's complicated enough trying to figure out which way a storm's going to go and how much it's going to develop. And you've got that one that one level of, of forecasting which we all rely on. But there's also the other level which is saying, well, uh, water temperatures are getting warmer, so we're going to see more of this sort of thing happening. Yeah, well, that's, that's um, but in terms of when, you, when these models were first worked out, uh, by Lorenz back in 1963. He had just said he, he took the incredibly complicated Navier-Stokes equations. I've forgotten the actual manifestation of them, but they, they work at being, I think, 11-dimensional equations, partial differential equations. And he simplified them down to three-dimensional uh, ordinary differential equations where you, your variables were simply the, uh, like the XY, the location of a, of, a, of a blob of water on a hot plate, an XY plate, and the, how hot the hot plate was, the temperature in the bottom and the top of a, of a, column of water effectively and that generated incredibly complicated cycles which is where the idea of the uh, <coughs> pardon me the butterfly effect comes from and that was the foundation on which over the last 50 years the models of weather forecasting we now rely upon were formed and those models these days and i know this from talking to meteorologists they now include the impact of uh, on on the climate itself of the mixing of gases uh, in a city carbon dioxide carbon monoxide um, sulfur, sulfur dioxide, et cetera, et cetera, all those chemicals mixing together. So they've included all the complicated stuff you're talking about there, but they began from this incredibly simple foundation of an XY location and a temperature gradient. Now, what I'm saying with economics is, yes, we need to get to models where you can include all those factors over time to improve the accuracy of how we can characterize this behavior. But we start from the absolutely simplest basis of those three elements, uh, distribution of income, employment rate, which is effectively the level of economic activity, and leverage, which is the finance sector. Right. So it's sort of like a dynamic, stochastic, fairly complex, but not too complex, disequilibrium model. Yeah, this is what we really should be having. I'm going to say DSGE models uh, are neither dynamic nor general. Okay? They're basically stochastic equilibrium models. You take a model, uh, you say it's going to be, you, you, you imagine the time path you want is converging towards this future bliss point, 
there's a shock that moves the bliss point. Uh, that therefore means people instantly, in the case of real business cycle models, slowly in the case of DSGE models, move to the new equilibrium path. And in that transition, they're either permanently in equilibrium. So the Great Depression was a holiday, which is the case you'll find made by Wayne Edward Prescott in a paper in 1999 called Some Observations on the Great Depression. Uh, or if you have the Paul Krugman approach and the Eggertson and, and uh I've forgotten the other guy's name, the main person involved in writing these bloody models these days. Um, his approach is, well, you get a shock, and because you have perfect competition in the, in the consumer uh, goods market, but you have imperfect competition in the product market, therefore there'll be a slow rate of return down to equilibrium. And what we're now doing to try to cope with the fact we didn't see the financial crisis coming is we're adding the financial sector as a source of frictions things that slow down how fast you return to equilibrium, not things that push you off your bloody feet in the first place. It's all their fault. So uh, their fault. So, so, this tool, uh, which, That's which a is a good description. <laughs> it's a tool being used by central banks. They use it to determine their policy, to evaluate, supposedly evaluate their policy. They're using it to make forecasts. By evaluate policy, they mean, you know, let's look at uh, whether we're right on this and uh, whether our forecasts were correct. They obviously are convinced by the model. They obviously think it, it works because they're still using it. They, this is the case of when the crisis hit, they definitely believe that. And again, I can't give names in, in this case, but I've spoken to quite a few modelers who worked in central banks and they said, we literally believe we knew how the economy worked. We we're confident that we could control it by varying the interest rate using what they call the Taylor rule, which is part of the DSGE models as well. They actually build the central bank into the model as an interest rate setting uh, component of, of the model. And uh, we believe we had everything under control and we were blown we were gobsmacked when the crisis hit completely panicked we had no idea of what to do and in terms of policy it was basically the response of you know if, if you believe there's no such thing as pardon me using a rather brutal example but no such thing as a shooter on the 32nd floor of a of a uh, of a block and suddenly people start shooting you run you run you jump you crash you do what they have you panic and that was the that was the basis of the policies in 2008 was sheer panic now in the aftermath they thought, oh, well, we can think about it as an exogenous shock, one which came from a direction we weren't expecting, which is the finance sector. But now let's include the finance sector as a potential source of both shocks and frictions. And that's what they started doing. But as they started modifying their models and tried to fit them to data for 10 years, they continued assuming we're going to return back to this equilibrium point, which has got them, I think I mentioned this before, the magic two, three, four numbers, yep. 2% rate of inflation. 3% rate of economic growth and 4% rate of, uh, of rate of interest. And that's the bliss point they thought we'd keep on returning to. And for 10 years, they've been forced to downgrade their expectations of growth every year, to downgrade their inflationary expectations every year. And they're finally started to say, our models don't work. And that's what you're seeing turning up in the work of Koshal Akata to some extent, uh, Blanchard, and certainly the case of, uh, of Paul Roma, and a number of people in central banks and bodies like the OECD around the world. Yeah, well, not the Fed. Uh, they reckon not even yet, not by a long shot. That's despite, right. despite the evidence, they're saying no, inflation will come back. It's mm. just a lag. It's just a lag. It's a ten-year lag, but it's a lag. Uh, mm. We'll see it back here soon. All right. Well, look, that was a fairly detailed discussion. It was. I'm glad we had that. We've. Uh, it's been a long time, a uh, long time overdue, I think. Uh, and we'll talk uh, something a little bit easier to digest next time. Maybe not. We're going to look at uh, the idea behind capitalism and whether it works better when we're not acquiring capital anymore. Uh, so we'll talk about that next time. See you soon. 
Okay, mate, bye. Actually, we, we might push back that story on capital accumulation if, as we expect, the Bank of England pushes up interest rates this week, in which case uh, we will ask uh, the question, what kind of a stupid thing is that to do? Uh, maybe that's the next one. Uh, that is the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for sitting through all of it today. We'll see you soon. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.